evening, Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45 is where we'll find our text tonight. Matthew's gospel chapter 27 and verse 45. It says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, this man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. And the rest said, let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. We come this evening to the fourth of Jesus' sayings on the cross, and it perhaps is the best known of those cries from the cross, when he calls out in his Aramaic tongue, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Forsaken. Let that one word sink in. What does it feel like to be forsaken? It's a very strong term. It's a very emotive word, the word forsaken. There are times in our lives when we might have felt or might feel forsaken. A man perhaps forsaken by his friends. A husband forsaken by his wife. A son forsaken by his father. And some of you might feel forsaken even this evening. It's a word that speaks to us of loneliness, of abandonment, of distress. And that's precisely how the Lord Jesus felt as he hanged upon the cross in Calvary, dying for your sins and for mine. Now as we come to this particular passage tonight and as we address this particular cry the first thing I want you to see is that these words came during a moment of darkness notice that in verse 45 of our text it says now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour so the fact of the matter is that as the Lord Jesus was being crucified at midday the world went into darkness the earth went into darkness and remained in that state for a full three hours. And the darkness that fell on the face of the earth that day was a mark of God's displeasure with the sin of man. You see, darkness is always a symbol of God's wrath. And God's wrath that day was being made known by a darkness that could be 
felt. Now you should understand this is not a natural phenomenon that you're reading of here. This is not a solar eclipse. And you say, well, how do you know that? We know that because Jesus died at a particular time of year. He died at the Passover. And the Jewish people observe in their calendar the lunar clock. They follow a lunar calendar. And so on the day of Passover, it is always a day in which there is a full moon. Now, there cannot be a full moon. You know, scientifically, there cannot be a full moon and a solar eclipse at the same time. That is not possible. uh, Because if you understand the layout of the sun, the moon, and the earth, in order for there to be a full moon, the sun has to be uh, on the opposite side of the earth uh, from the moon. For a solar eclipse to take place, the sun and the moon have to pass by each other. And so it's impossible that this was a solar eclipse. This is not a natural event that you're reading about here in verse 45. It's a supernatural event. So that we say for three hours, the Lord Jesus hung upon the cross at first in exposed in broad daylight and shamed for all to see. And then for three hours, he hung in darkness, shrouded by the displeasure of God upon his sinful world. Now you might say, well, did this actually happen? Is this just the Bible exaggerating the case? Is this just a literary tool that is being employed by Matthew? Or did this actually occur? Well, actually, there's contemporary evidence for this event and this unusual darkness. Thales wrote in a writing of his original history in about AD 52 is quoted by Julius Africanus, a renowned third century historian who said this, Thales in the third book of his histories explains away the darkness as an eclipse of the sun, unreasonably as it seems to me. In other words, he acknowledged that there was an unusual darkness that day and with all the ferve and skill of a National Geographic journalist, he decided he would try to naturalize the event and explain it away. Phlegon, a Greek historian of the time, wrote uh, an extensive chronology around AD 137, and he said this, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, that is literally AD 33, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun, that it became night in the sixth hour of the day, that is at noon, so that the stars appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. You know, that's exactly how the Bible describes the crucifixion. And it's significant that this darkness should fall just before the Savior finally surrendered his life to death. You see, he is the ultimate Passover lamb. That's why he died on that particular day. That's why he had to die, even as the people of Israel were sacrificing their lambs in celebration of their Passover festival. Here was the ultimate lamb of God giving his life for the sins of the world. He dies the ultimate Passover lamb. God's final sacrifice for sin. And his death was typified, as we saw a few weeks ago, in the Jewish feast of Passover. In the book of Exodus, in the last of the ten plagues, we know that God would slay the firstborn of Egypt. 
and that the only means by which one might escape the sweeping judgment of the death angel was to dab blood upon the lintel of your home and the two side posts of your front door so that the angel would pass over you. But before that final plague was played out, I want you to understand something else, that the ninth plague, just before the Passover plague took place, the ninth plague was the plague of darkness. Look with me in Exodus chapter 10, if you would, for this evening. Exodus chapter 10 and verse 21. Exodus chapter 10 and verse 21. Says, and the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And I want you to notice in verse 22 that description of that darkness is portrayed as a thick darkness. Quite literally in the Hebrew, it was a darkness of darkness. It was a darkness that was said according to verse 21 that could be felt. A darkness that may be felt. A supernatural darkness. Not just a diminishing of light but a foreboding experience. Many years ago when I was a young man I was a youth leader in a, in a church and I uh, took our young people every year to Fermanagh. We head down to Derry Gonley and we had a, a, a week of youth camp. And every week, we, every week of that year, we would go uh, caving in the Marble Arch Caves. Now, we didn't do the show caves, okay? The show caves is for sissies. We, we did the, the real stuff, okay? We got, we got all geared up, and we trudged through the mud and the slime and the rivers and all the rest of it, and we slid down mud banks, and we had a great time. It was brilliant. I enjoyed it very much. But, you know, when you, it's always a point in that journey where your tour guide, uh, when, they, when they get you into uh, some big chasm, and they, and they sit you down and they have you switch off your little miner's lights and they show you how dark it is in that place. And I remember this particular occasion, uh, we had this guide with us and he brought us into one of the chambers of the Marble Arch Caves and we, there was a little, uh, a little bit of water there, a little bit of a lake there and he sat all the young people around and, and you had to sit apart from one another and, and we sat around, uh, you know, maybe a meter apart from each other and, and then he said, I want you to switch off your lights and I don't want you to say anything to anyone until I tell you to switch your light back on again. And so we gave the word, and we turned off our lights, and we sat in pitch darkness. Now you think, you know, it's rather like when you're in your bed at night and you switch off your bedside lamp. You know, at first the room seems very dark, but after a little while, you get a little bit of light, and you can begin to make out the shape of your wardrobes and various things around your bedroom. But when you're that far beneath the ground, there is no sunlight whatsoever. There is no source of light whatsoever. And so you sit there in total silence and you're in this thick darkness, a darkness that could be felt. And you have this moment as you sit there, the longer you sit, you begin to feel a sense of foreboding, a sense of abandonment. You begin to wonder if everybody else is still there. And an interesting thing happened on this particular day. 
as we sat there in that darkness for what seemed like an eternity, people began to reach out and to touch their neighbor. You see, they didn't like it. They didn't like being left in the dark in that way. And I have to confess, it was a rather unsettling experience. And that's exactly what the Egyptians of old experienced as an expression of God's anger with them. But it was also an expression of his anger that day upon the hill of Calvary. You see, what we read of there in Matthew 26 and, and verse 4, 27 and verse 45, that there was darkness over all the land. Effectively, it's a preview of hell. If you were looking Matthew chapter 8 and verse 12, we'll not take the time to look there this evening, or Jude in chapter 1 and verse 13, you would read there of outer darkness and of the blackness of darkness that's reserved for those who are unsaved. You know, you understand that's a reference to hell in both cases, and the Bible is telling us that hell is a, a terrible place. It's a place of no light. It's a place of no blessing. It's a place where there's no sense of God's presence. Understand that God has given us every good thing to enjoy. If God isn't there, there is nothing to enjoy. Understand that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. But if the Father of lights has switched off the light and you're left in the darkness, you're in outer darkness, you're in blackness of darkness. Understand there's no good gift for you to enjoy. There's nothing pleasurable about hell. There's nothing you can say that in some way redeems the experience. There's nothing you can look at and say, well, it's not so bad after all. No, it's terrible. It's a darkness that can be felt. Blackness of darkness forever. So we read that when the Lord Jesus was on the cross from the sixth hour, from noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. 3 p.m. It was a moment of darkness. And it was a moment of distress, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, after three hours of this experience, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Of the seven sayings of the cross, this is the one that holds the central place. This is the one upon which all the others pivot. This is the moment that reminds us what this event, this crucifixion, is all about. At this very moment, at three o'clock in the afternoon, Christ declares himself absolutely forsaken of God. Well, there's some people read this passage and they say, well, you see, he wasn't entirely perfect. You see, there was a measure of distrust there. You know, he wavered in his faith. But that's not at all. This is not a cry of distrust at all. Far from it. It's a cry of distress. Notice he cries, my God, my God. He hasn't lost his faith in God. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't cease believing in God. He, he, he's, not, he's not wavering here. He's not, he's not losing his faith here. Rather, his faith is solid. He's crying out to his father. He says, my God, my God. And actually, this is one of the few places in the Gospels, as you read the accounts of Christ's life, where he re- refers to his father as God. Most times, he simply addresses God as his father. 
It's very interesting, you know. I had a Jehovah's Witness one time who came to my door and he was insistent that God must be called Jehovah and only Jehovah. And if you fail to call him Jehovah, you are no longer in his favor. And so I suggested to him that such being the case, that Jesus must have been the greatest of all Jehovah's Witnesses. And he agreed with me that Jesus was the greatest of all Jehovah's Witnesses. And then I asked him, well then, why was it that Jesus did not once refer to God as Jehovah? He had no answer. Now that's not to decry the name Jehovah. The name Jehovah is a perfectly legitimate name for God. But it is to say this, that Jesus had a unique relationship to God insofar as he constantly referred to him as his father with very few exceptions. And this being one of them where he cries out, my God, my God. Why doesn't he say, my father, my father, why hast thou forsaken me? Why does he say, my God, my God? Why does he change the form of address? Because he wants to underscore the fact that there is now a break in fellowship between him him and God the Father. This was the bitter cup that he had to swallow. He who was perfectly holy, he who had enjoyed unbroken fellowship with his Father from eternity past to that very moment, must now drink of the cup of his Father's wrath. This was the cup of which he spoke in the previous chapter. Alistair took us to it uh, this after, this morning, this afternoon at the Lord's table in Matthew chapter 26. And he read the passage there uh, for us. And it says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and said unto his disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And he saith unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Even unto death, tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Now look at his prayer. O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thy wilt. And as he cometh unto his disciples and findeth them asleep, he saith unto Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass from me, uh, except I drink it, I will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went again. And notice, and prayed the third time the same words. Three times the Savior prayed for the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane that this cup, this cup of God's wrath might be removed from him. He was speaking of that same cup that is outpoured in Revelation 16, 19, which speaks of the fierceness, of the, of the, the cup of the fierceness of God's wrath. Can you imagine this? As he anticipated Calvary, this was a terrible prospect for him. You see, he's going to bear, and he does bear, in his own person, our sin. Now let that thought sink in. He became sin for us. He became legally culpable for every sin that man 
ever engaged in. All the wrongs of humanity. The genocides. The pedophilia. The perversions. The addictions. The murder. The rape. The adultery. The greed. The deceit. The dishonesty. The pride. The lust. All of it was laid upon him. He personified those things in that moment. He became sin for us. Can you imagine this? Our lovely Lord Jesus, the one who had known nothing of sin, the one who was holy from eternity past, who dwelt in an atmosphere of holiness, who had the angels of God gathered around his throne crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He who had dwelt from all eternity in that kind of surrounding suddenly must bear in his own person all of the crime and all of the wickedness and all of the sin of mankind including your sin and my sin on his own person the Bible says for he hath made him to be sin for us he who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him That's a hard truth to contemplate, isn't that? Now listen to me carefully. Your sin was put on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he bore it and took God's punishment for it. That's hard to deal with. I remember preaching on this in a church some time back. And a man came to me afterwards at the door. He met me on the way out in the door. And he said, he said, do you, do you really believe that? I said, believe what? He says, do you really believe? And this was a, this is a man who was a Christian man. He said, do you really believe that Christ became sin for us? And I said, well, that's what the Bible says. He says, well, I know it says it, but I would never preach it. And off he went in a bit of a strap. As he was leaving, I thought, well, that's why God called me to preach and not you. <laughs> well, I'll preach it. Because the Bible says it. He became sin for us. Who knew no sin. That we might have the righteousness of God in him. No wonder God covered this moment in darkness. No wonder he began to switch out the lights of heaven. No wonder he began to shroud the whole earth in a thick felt darkness in this moment because it's the most awful moment in all of human experience. He was pouring out his wrath upon his own son. Small wonder that Jesus cried, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In the words of the commentator Arthur Pink, He said this, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has a God who strengthens him. On the cross, he has a God who turns away from him. In Gethsemane, he can call 12 legions of angels who would have been quick to deliver him. On the cross, he cries to God who refuses deliverance. Previously, he said, the Father has not left him alone. Now the Father has turned his face away. In Gethsemane, the Son was tempted to forsake the Father. On the cross, the Father forsook the Son. It was a moment of darkness. 
And it was a moment of distress. And it was a moment of destiny. There are those who cannot come to terms with this idea that God the Father poured out his wrath upon his own Son and required the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of men's souls. They despise this gospel this week that we preach, this blood-bought salvation, this bloody religion as they call it. They despise any preacher who will stand in a pulpit and declare that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. I have a friend in England, he's a lay preacher. He went off to preach for the Methodist Church, brought up in the Methodist Church his entire life. Went to a Methodist Bible college and, and they were going to license him to preach. And he stood, sat before a board and they asked him, well, what will you preach? What will be your message as a Methodist minister? He said, my message will be that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. I will preach that you must be born again. They said, we're not licensing you. And they refused to approve him. Some years ago, the old Anglican bishop... John Shelby Spong, he died last year, I expect if he died as he lived, he's in hell tonight. He said, I would choose to loathe rather than to worship a deity who required the sacrifice of his son. Imagine your minister saying that to you concerning the crucifixion of Christ. I would rather loathe him than worship him. Steve Chalk, a TV celebrity, a supposed Baptist pastor and founder of the Oasis Charitable Trust, says that the idea of Christ becoming a substitute for our sin and the subject of God's wrath is, in his words, a twisted version of events that is morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. He describes the, the, he describes the doctrine of Christ's blood atonement as cosmic child abuse. And you know the Muslim says the same thing. Islam finds this idea of putting God's son to death abhorrent. One Islamic apologist used the same language as Steve Chalk when he, was, uh, when he asked, what kind of a father is God if he punishes his son for the sins of others? Now let me help you out here. People who say things like that are either denying or misunderstanding the doctrine of the Trinity. You see, I have a son. He's my only son. I would do anything for him. I certainly wouldn't desire in any sense to punish him uh, for the sins of another, certainly not by death. Uh, I wouldn't do that. What father would do that? But you must understand that my relationship to that my son and God's relationship to his son are not entirely uh, the same. You see, Jesus said, I and my father are one. He said, he that hath seen me hath seen the father. Now my son and I are not one. We're two separate individuals who will stand individually and give an account of ourselves to God. But God God is triune, one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the three are one, co-equal and co-eternal, having precisely the same nature and attributes and worthy of precisely the same worship. I remember I was out preaching one time in the street and I was making the point that God is triune. 
And this Muslim came past. He walked past and with a big smirk on his face like he was Einstein. He says, one plus one plus one is three. And off he walked like he had just, the cat that got the cream. And I said, hey boy. That's what you say when you're from Northern Ireland, doesn't it? Even if you're in England, you shout, hey boy. Hey boy. He turned around and I said, one times one times one is one. He wasn't such a great mathematician now. Three persons in the one Godhead. Not three gods, but one God. Not an almighty God and a lesser mighty God as the the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. That would make two gods. But one God. And I want you to understand that Jesus was not a victim of the cross. He wasn't bullied by his father. But his father was compliant to the cross. And Jesus was compliant to the cross. Even as we saw in Genesis 22. And the two of them went together. So when you see Christ dying for the sins of man, you should not think of him as someone apart from God, but as God himself. This was his destiny. This is the creator dying for his creation, for you and me. He's taking the punishment we deserve. And I want you to understand, if he doesn't take that punishment, you do. You see at the cross, God's son, bore God's curse in my place. Look with me in the book of Psalms for a moment. In Psalm 22. Because you might say, well, why is all of this necessary? Why is this needful at all? Psalm 92, written about a thousand years, almost a thousand years B.C. And this opening line is a familiar one to us. We've read it already in Matthew 27. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and I'm not silent, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. First one are, is unmistakably the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as we've just read them in Matthew's gospel hanging upon that cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? His hearers thought he was calling upon Elijah to rescue him, to help him. But they were as mistaken in their day as those in our day are who believed that this was a cry of faithfulness. So I've said already, These words indicate a moment of judicial separation when he becomes culpable for the sins of all mankind. When there's a break in the eternal fellowship. And so as the sin bearer, Jesus upon the cross becomes sin. He personifies it. He identifies with it. He's immersed in it. And as such, he faces the awful rejection of a fiercely holy God. Now forsaken by his father, he experiences the most bitter blow of all. Notice his heart cries out in verse 2 of this song. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. 
and in the night season, and I'm not silent. He's crying out to his father, calling out to him. Why, says in verse verse 1, art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Why aren't you coming to my rescue? The word roaring is the equivalent of the sound that an animal makes when it's in deep pain. It's it's a cry of agony as the Lord Jesus cries out. He says, God, I I call out to you in the daytime while it's daylight. daylight. I call out to you in the darkness whilst the sun has been switched off. I'm crying out to you and you don't hear me. You're not answering me. You're not responding. Why have I been forsaken? Why have you turned your back upon me? And the answer comes in the third verse. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. That's why. Do you want to know why God forsook him on that cross? Because he is holy. And Christ became something unholy in that moment. Your sin. My sin. Every dirty thought. Every dirty word. Every dirty deed. Laid upon him. He's judged in your place. He is forsaken. Now get this. So that you might be forgiven. He is forsaken. That you might be forgiven. You know at the cross man did his absolute worst. He nailed the son of God to a tree. At the cross Satan did his absolute best. To satisfy his hatred of God. And bruise the heel of the Messiah. But on the cross Jesus did his work, dying, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And God the Father played his part, exhibiting his holiness and satisfying his justice by pouring out his wrath upon the one who was made sin for us. God forsook his son. There are times in our lives when we might feel forsaken. If you're a Christian, understand that because Jesus was forsaken, now you will never be. Hebrews 13.5 promises us, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You'll never experience what Christ experienced. Jesus in his great commission says to those who follow him, Lo, I am with you always. Even to the end of the world. Because he was forsaken. You will never be. But if you're not a Christian. You should understand there is no help coming. From heaven. For you. I heard the uh, television. Physicist. Professor Brian Cox some time back, speaking about alien life. Was there life on other planets? And he said that effectively the scientific community was coming to the conclusion that there is no life in outer space. That we're it. That this is the only planet in all of this great expanding universe 
upon which life as we know it exists. And yet they keep searching for life. And when asked why they are still searching for life in outer space, when in the depths of their hearts they feel that there is no such life, he said, because the prospect of being all alone in the universe scares us. Well, I want you to know tonight, if you're not a Christian, effectively you're all alone in the universe. There is no help coming your way from the heavens. Because of your sin, God's wrath abides upon you. And you might be tempted to say, well, I don't believe in that kind of God. A God of love would never treat me that way. Listen, don't be a fool. If God would forsake his own son, and if God would pour out his wrath upon his own son, What makes you think that he will make an exception for you? You need to be saved tonight. You need to call out for God's mercy this evening. You need to have the sacrifice of Christ applied to your heart tonight. To ask God to count you in, to accept you as one of his own. You need to tell him that you're truly sorry for your sins. You need to repent concerning all the wrong in your life and believe upon the Lord Jesus to save you and confess him as yours. Why not do that this evening? Just where you are. Come as you are. You say, but I'm a good person. You're not a good person. You're a sinful person. You say, well, I go to church. Well, bully for you. Lots of people go to church. And many of them will drop off at church pews straight into hell. You say, well, I've been christened or baptized or confirmed. It matters not one bit. You need to be saved. You need to know Christ. And tonight, as a minister of the gospel, I implore you to come to him for cleansing and for salvation. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts. We're going to sing our final hymn this evening. Behold the Father's love for us.